Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Podcast. We are so glad that you've joined us today. We confess that we don't have all the answers, but as a community, we seek to find and follow Jesus and to discover daily the life he has always wanted for us. We hope this message will be encouraging and will inspire you to take the next steps on your spiritual journey. If we can help you in any way, please connect with us. The easiest way is through our website at ericksoncovenant.ca. Let's get started. You know, on Thanksgiving weekend, we join in this very good, I think, good cultural custom of giving thanks, being grateful for all the gifts we've received. And we name them, right? The, the gift of God's provision of the land around us, of the friendships and the family and the free country, peaceful country, our church, our work, our dogs, our cats. <laughs> the list goes on, right? We're very thankful, and it's great to share that with each other. Of course, if you were around last week, oh, man, I knew Thanksgiving was coming when I preached last week, too, that last week's teaching of Jesus is still kind of ringing in our ears, or rather, our ears are still ringing from that teaching because now we're more alert than ever that these blessings we're so glad to give thanks for have inherent dangers, don't they? We talked about that. Jesus challenged us not to be fooled by the so-called goods if the very blessings that we enjoy end up blinding us to our need for him. And he gave some pretty stark words about that. And if you want to listen in, maybe after Thanksgiving, you want to listen in, uh, that is available on YouTube and Apple Podcasts and from our website. But, so that's really true. And, and Jesus' words, obviously, we need to like take them really seriously. And yet, of course, the larger context of scripture is constantly calling us to give thanks. Give thanks to the Lord, to, to, to be a people who are constantly grateful in all things for the way that God works and the way that he is presence, present in our lives. And so celebrations of thanksgiving or the daily practice of gratitude are crucial ways that we actually remember that everything we enjoy is a gift from God's own hand. And actually, when we do that, we then are less in danger of losing sight of the giver of those gifts. And because we don't want those good things that God has given us to become barriers, of course, to us. Barriers to God himself. When we look around, of course, especially we who live here in the Creston Valley, we look at the valley we live in, it's incredible capacity for growing food, it's vibrant biodiversity, all these wonderful watersheds and lakes and mountains and fields. It is hard not to give thanks, isn't it? I mean, we are just compelled to give thanks to the creator and the sustainer of all. And what's more, through the abundance that we experience, through all this provision that we see, through the seasonal regularity, we actually glimpse a God who is caring and compassionate for all people. Our God is a God who lavishly pours out his gifts on all, and he does so regardless of their moral character, of our moral character, regardless of our spiritual responsiveness, regardless of how good or how bad we are, this God indiscriminately cares for all. This is actually what the great apostle Paul was yelling about in Acts chapter 14. He tried to stop a group of enamored locals from sacrificing a bull in their honor. 
There was a bit of a language gap happening. And uh, you see Paul and Barnabas, through the power of Jesus, power of the Holy Spirit, had just healed a lame man. And, and these, these, these country bumpkins were so taken with these guys that they tried to sacrifice a bull to them. And it took a while for Paul and Barnabas to realize what was happening. But when they did, whew, talk about giving somebody a heart attack, particularly these, these uh, Jewish followers of Jesus. And so Paul is screaming and shouting, trying to get them to stop. And these are his words. He says, we're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he's not, let himself, he's not left himself without testimony. Now listen to this. This is what Paul is saying to these guys. He's not left them without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in all their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. (laughs) Now, did you hear uh, Paul's basic point here? The very rain you receive from heaven, watering the abundant crops in your fields, providing both food and joy, these are all signs, Paul's trying to tell them, signs of God's kindness for you. Even when you didn't know this God. This is the God who's behind it all. And now that you can see that, now that you're hearing the good news, leave your false gods, turn around, give thanks to the one true God who is compassionate and gracious and kind. And this grace, this truth still holds. That when we look around us, when we consider our valley, we see the kindness and the care of God everywhere we look. I dare you to look around and try not find it. No matter who we are, no matter what we've done, God's kindness shines through both the sun and the rain. And that's because the true God is, we're repeatedly told through scripture, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. And he reveals his character. He reveals his kindness through all of these things. That's the character of God revealed through creation and then ultimately through Christ. And it's his kindness, Paul then tells us later in the book of Romans, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Now, why am I emphasizing all this at the start? Because it's this lavish care in creation that sets us up to receive the masterclass passage in Luke today. Now, if you're new or you're visiting with us, we've been going through the gospel of Luke as though we're in a masterclass. That's an M. A masterclass. And we're sitting at the feet of Jesus as apprentices. And we're learning from his example and from his teaching how we are to follow him as his disciples, as his apprentices. We've been implementing his teaching so that we can live lives like him. And we're in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 36, we're looking at today. And it's part of a larger block of teaching. Jesus is continuing to tell his disciples, his apprentices, how to live as his kingdom people, as a people who are now marked by a different way of being, and they're shaped now through the character of their heavenly father. Now, Jesus, as I mentioned earlier, had just flipped over the whole notion of what it means to be blessed in life. He's turned it over, and he's actually told them that these things we often point to as spiritual blessings are actually inherently dangerous. And he terrifyingly informed us that we can think we're blessed when we're at most, when we're in the most danger. We can think we're blessed when we're in the most danger. And we can think of our lives as cursed. We can look around us and say, wow, our life is a dumpster fire. And yet actually be living the kind of life that God will reward. It all has to do with 
how we respond, relate, and depend upon Jesus. That's last week's message. But there's more, Jesus says. Jesus wants us to know that those of us who decide to depend on Jesus, to throw their lives upon him, to be faithful to him, will be mistreated by other people. Guaranteed. That when you stay faithful to Jesus, untrue things will be said about you. Get ready for it. That when you remain committed to Jesus' ways, people will take advantage of you. You need to know it. If, you ha- if you're not a follower of Jesus here today, this is your warning. Jesus wants his followers to know that they will be disregarded, will be slandered, will be passed over for promotions or ridicule behind their backs, all because they've chosen to love God and love others as Jesus taught them to. And so what do we do then? You know, what do you do when you're being mistreated? What do you do when you're being slandered? What do you do when people are bullying you? How are we to act when people are ignorant to us or people we thought were friends reject us or maybe family members disown us or people we thought got us and understood us, we had a good rapport with, then say awful things about us behind our backs all because we stood up for what was right and loved others as Jesus told us to. What then? It's a pretty relevant question actually. And Jesus offers very specific, very practical advice in response. He wants his apprentices, his followers, to understand that how we treat other people is not determined by how they treat us. How we treat others is determined by how God treats them instead. Did you catch that? I'm going to say that again because really the rest of the message just is an unpacking of this summary of Jesus' teaching. How we treat other people is not determined by how they treat us. You hear that? How we treat others is determined by how God treats them instead. God's loving action toward others, regardless of their moral or spiritual status or responsiveness, regardless of their love for him or their rejection of him, leads us as his people into loving action for them too. If last week's teaching was disturbing, or which it was, this week's teaching is just plain hard. I wish there was more like, you know, confusion, what Jesus was saying. It's not. It's clear. But it all flows from the compassionate actions of our generous God. So let's walk through Luke 6 together. Jesus continues like this. He says, but to all you who are listening, I say, the words of Jesus here, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. We'll unpack this for a little moment. This is some straight talk from Jesus, isn't it? And I want you to notice how action-oriented he is here. Jesus does not say, feel good about your enemies. He does not say, agree with what they're doing. He does not say, try to muster up some warm fuzzies for them. Jesus tells his followers, which includes anyone today who claims the name of Jesus, who says they're Christian, who is a follower of Jesus. He says to put love into action for the benefit of those who are mistreating them. Love, as they say, is a verb. And we're told to do love. To do love by doing good for those who, what? Hate you. That is, we are to seek practical, tangible ways to make their life better. To help them out. 
to engage them for their benefit. What's more, we're to respond to their negative speech about us with blessing. This word bless here is very interesting. It means to use our words to speak good about. The Greek word here is the same word we get when we use the word eulogy at a funeral. Eulogy just means saying a good word. The U at the front is good and logi is word. A good word. We're called to say good words about those who are saying evil words about us. To use our mouths to bless. Even those who are cursing us. And this is very difficult. But as children of the Father, we're to use our words to build up the very people who are using their words to tear us down, to mock us or ridicule us or hurt us or slander us. And then we're also told to pray for them who mistreat us, to speak to God for them, to intercede for their salvation, for their good, for their health, for their flourishing, to actually bring their names and their lives and their hurts and their hard hearts and maybe their thick skulls and their families and their futures, to bring them all to Jesus in prayer and to pray for God's spirit to break through to them, to save them, to reveal himself to them, to bring them into the family, into the life of God. How do we respond to those who hurt and mistreat us, which they will? We may not like it, We may not like what Jesus says, but Jesus is super practical and super clear. He says, love them, do good for them, bless them, pray for them. And and here's the thing. We can actually take this teaching of Jesus and apply it directly, first of all, to the relational conflicts we undergo with people who we wouldn't call our enemies, like the ones we live with. (laughs) Although some days. Uh, Family and friends. Relational conflicts that we're having with people that are in the closer realm. Maybe someone uh, that you love, that you're having a real struggle with. You can take these same principles and seek, how do I actually do good, seek their benefit? How do I bless them instead of speaking negatively? You know, just venting a bit with friends. How do you use your language to bless and build up? both behind closed doors and to God, but even to them. How do you pray for them? So we can take this teaching of Jesus and we can actually respond in love to where people we're wrestling with, right through to those extreme conditions where we may be persecuted in some way or disregarded in some way because of our faith in Jesus. We might be slandered because of our commitment to the authority of Scripture. We might be rejected because we love those who are unlovable. And Jesus' teaching covers all of that. And now we know what to do. Isn't that great? You now know what to do. You should be like, yes, finally, I know what to do with that guy. There's no confusion at all. But Jesus is a master teacher. And so he gives his teaching some legs by giving us some examples. They're super helpful. He says, he goes on, he says, if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other one also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. And then he gives us the famous golden rule, do to others as you would have them do to you. Ouch. Jesus really puts it on the ground here, doesn't it? Most of us kind of feel like this is a recipe for abuse. Are you with me? It's kind of like, Jesus, get some boundaries, why don't you? I mean... 
Don't you know what'll happen if I just give in to these tyrants, even if they're three years old and they live in my home? Do you know what'll happen? I mean, where's it going to end, right? And Jesus says, yeah, watch me. It'll end at the cross. Well, it doesn't actually end there, but you know what I'm saying. That's where he's going. Well, let's look a little deeper into what these examples that Jesus gives, because I think Jesus knows something that we don't. He's a brilliant teacher and we can trust him. So someone up and cuffs you. Anyone? Uh, that experience. Someone up and cuffs you. They backhand you across the cheek, literally or figuratively. This, in, in this context, is the act of someone shaming someone else, shaming you, belittling you. It's very likely this slap Jesus is talking about was meant to be demeaning or insulting. It was not meant to knock you out and, you know, you wake up five minutes later. That's not the kind of thing that's going on here. But now, by offering that person the other cheek, the disciple of Jesus is saying, you are choosing to shame me, but I am secure in who I am as a follower of Jesus. So why don't you go on and hit me fully anyway? I'm going to love you just the same because my love for you is not dependent on your good. It's not dependent on your love. My love for you is dependent on God's love for you. That's all being said in here by offering the other cheek. It's a chance though, just a chance, that the slapper will feel shame. Ashamed of their actions in light of how loving you are in return. Now there's no guarantee of that. When Jesus hung on the cross, there's no guarantee that people were going to see the kindness and love of God in there. There's no guarantee, but there is a chance that your loving action, like the kind action of God, will shake them in some way. It's the same thing with the coat and shirt business, the Jesus' second example. In a day when a soldier or an overlord or a moneylender could demand your coat maybe as a security or a loan or payment, Something the law forbid for those who are poor because it might be their only warmth that night, but people did it anyway. Jesus says, why don't you give them your shirt too? Which for those of us with a closet full of the gleaners' shirts, um, it doesn't strike us that odd, but we need to understand that the shirt Jesus is talking about here is likely the next and last layer of clothing that they had on, which, if given away can create a very embarrassing situation. You'll be down to your basics. Maybe not completely naked, but enough to cause a scandal. See, in that culture, uh, seeing someone naked or less than appropriately dressed was far more shameful for the person seeing it than it was for the person exposed. Again, Jesus is saying that you can love the person who is oppressing you by pushing them to their shameful end. Not in a mean sort of way, but letting them feel the full weight of their terrible actions through your loving response in the hope that they can see and repent. That kindness can lead to repentance. And all this loving action is sourced by generosity, which leads Jesus to top off his examples with just that. He says, when you're asked to give something or when something's taken from you, a.k.a. stolen from you, don't demand it back. Ooh, that's hard. Isn't that hard? Don't go near my tools, please. Um, now, not only does this kind of letting go, Jesus is advocating here, just let it go, just let it go, just let it go, just give it. Not only does it cut at the root, the kind of resentment and anger, oh, that guy owes me, oh, he borrowed my saw, oh, 
that kind of thing that would carry you for the next 20 years? God help us all. Not only does it cut that right at the root, but that kind of generosity expresses again how followers of Jesus live out the radical generosity of God, including a generosity towards people who don't deserve it. That's the kind of God that we follow. This is the gospel grace in action. It's expressed wholly and without reservation as a radical witness to the generous love of God. Now, I want to be really clear about something in particular today. It's important that I say this. Jesus is not telling someone, a woman in particular, who is suffering domestic abuse at the hands of her partner to stay in the relationship and let the abuse continue. That is not what Jesus is saying here. That would be a gross misinterpretation of Jesus' teaching. And if you, or someone that you love, is in an abusive relationship, you need to get help. Get out. I know there's some of you that either people in your life or perhaps you yourself behind closed doors are in this kind of awful trap. And I want you to hear me. The rest of you, listen in. This is important. The abuser has broken covenant with you. And if you're in a marriage covenant, they've broken the marriage covenant too, and you can leave. And here's the deal. The only hope for their salvation and their healing will be you leaving them and not allowing them to abuse you anymore. But that actually doesn't contradict Jesus' point here. In actual fact, Jesus is saying that by offering the other cheek, by stripping down to the skivvies, but even by giving without expectation of return, these are concrete ways of resisting shameful actions of an abuser by shaming them through loving action. By actually, in some ways, through love, exposing them for what they are doing so that they might see the error of their ways and get the help that Jesus offers. In the case of domestic violence or sexual abuse, there is actually no possibility of repentance without exposure. And this is clear from anyone and everyone who has worked with victims of abuse. Light must overcome the darkness. No help can be given without leaving that situation, without getting safe, getting your kids safe, and exposing the sin, reporting it to the police if it's criminal. But that is not only for your good. You need to hear me straight. It's also for the good of the abuser. And in a domestic abuse situation, this is what doing good looks like, leaving the abuser, praying for them for sure, but knowing that the only hope they have is if they will acknowledge their sin in humility and repentance and receive forgiveness and start getting help. And I need to say this because people, usually women, have been told the monstrous lie, often propped up by foolish interpretations of Scripture, by Christians who should know better. And tragically sometimes, passages like this have been used to reinforce this deadly lie. That's wrong. So get out and get help. And if, if that's you today, or you have a friend or family member, you need to seek good counsel. Seek me out if you need to. Seek a trusted confidant and get others to help you with what you need. But Jesus, in this context, he's primarily giving guidance to his soon-to-be-persecuted followers. These people are going to face cultural, religious, and political mistreatment because of their association with Jesus. And we know that comes actually pretty soon, right? Luke tells the first part of Jesus' story in the Gospel of Luke and the second part in the book of Acts, and we see there's going to be a lot of mistreatment coming. Soon the followers of Jesus will find themselves 
seemingly powerless in different situations that are beyond their control. Yet Jesus readies them for it. Readies them to engage the mistreatment, not as helpless victims, but as trained apprentices. They know what to do. Jesus told us what to do. Children of a loving God who are now now able to act decisively different than everyone else around them and through their sacrificial witness change the course of history. The ancient writer Tertullian wrote that it was the blood of the martyrs that became the seed of the church. And within a few centuries, the sacrificial witness of our brothers and sisters overturned the Roman Empire. We know that historically. Followers of Jesus can love this way because they don't have the same operating parameters anymore that others do. They've been changed. Jesus goes on in verses 32 to 34. He says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. What's Jesus' assumption here? Apprentices of Jesus love differently going above and beyond what's considered normal because they aren't normal. I want you to look around this morning and just, just look, catch someone in the eyes. I know it's awkward, but make it awkward. And just look at them and say, you aren't normal. Go ahead. You aren't normal. Listen to how Jesus wraps it up. He says, but... In contrast to this, you know, sinners do that. You love differently. But love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then, Jesus says, then your reward will be great. And you will be children of the Most High. Because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful, or as the New Living Translation renders it, you must be compassionate because just as your father is compassionate. And we're right back to where we started, right? How we treat other people is not determined by how they treat us. How we treat others is determined by how God treats them instead. Jesus tells us to love others how the father loves others. And there's incredible freedom in this. Incredible freedom. Regardless of how others might act toward us, we're not helpless. We're not at their mercy. We're powerful. We often think that the way we act or the way we respond, the way we love, what we say or what we do is determined by how others act toward us, which puts us in a pretty helpless state. I mean, if they're nice to me, I'll be nice to them. But if they're mean to me, man, if they're cold to me, I'll freeze them out, man. Hit me, I'll take you down, or at least I'll spit and rail over it with my friends. And we blame others for our emotional or behavioral responses. We, we, we say, they're responsible for the way I'm acting. They're responsible for the way I'm feeling. I'm really upset today because you treated me poorly. I blew up because you were mean. I'm all out of sorts because he responded in a cutting way. Or don't blame me for how I'm acting. She's the one who got me going. One of the greatest signs of emotional immaturity is when we blame other people for our behavior. We blame other people for our actions. We blame other people for how we respond. But Jesus takes us in another direction, the direction of spiritual and emotional maturity. 
the maturity of an apprentice of Jesus. Jesus challenges us to act toward others, not out of response to their behavior, but out of response to God's behavior. And in this way, I really want you to try to take this in. In this way, Jesus helps us take full, mature responsibility for our actions, for our choices, for the feelings that follow them. Now, Jesus says, we can be loving, fully and completely loving, regardless of what other people choose, because our actions aren't hinged to theirs. Our actions are hinged to his. Do you see the difference? We can live generously no matter how others take advantage of us because we're fully free. We're stewarding this stuff anyway. We're not constrained by greed or selfishness. We've been released to live generously. We can bless and pray and do good and serve for the good of others, not because their actions warrant it, but because we've stopped taking our cues from them anyway. And we're started taking cues from God. And God, well, what's he like? Well, we look around. God is good to all. God is gracious to all. He shows care to all. He pours down provision on all, even the wicked and the unjust, even the ungrateful and the evil. And it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And then to make it all just as clear as possible, this same God revealed himself fully in Jesus Christ as a God who willingly loves his enemies unto death. Jesus' own life is a perfect demonstration of everything he's told us here. He loved his own enemies unto death, even his own shameful, naked death. And he chose to do good to those who mistreated him and bless those who cursed him and to come into this broken world to make things right for all of us sinners. That compassionate God who poured generously his life into us, who made us his kids through Jesus and by the gift of the Holy Spirit, it's him that we follow now. It's him that determines our actions. We might be mistreated, but what's beautiful about this is we're not at the mercy of the villain anymore. In fact, they're at the mercy of ours. Just wait till they see how we can love through mistreatment. We can't be jerked around by jerks. We courageously follow the lead of Jesus, our Messiah, crucified. And his love for his enemies is lived out full on the cross and now full in the lives of his kids. And we can discover in that the power of a life that is able to fully love. Yes, we follow the golden rule, don't we? We do unto others as we would have them do unto us. But more than that, I want to suggest that we follow God's own rule, that we do unto others as God does for them, as God does for us. God who lavished his love upon us long before we recognized it, long before we bowed the knee, long before we were willing to call him our Lord and our master. And now we as his children, we get to do the same through his grace, through his power. Love a world that doesn't even know it. There's a God who is kind and is pouring out his grace upon even the ungrateful and the wicked, upon even us. And we have this beautiful opportunity to follow him in just that way. Lord, help us be that kind of people. Jesus, we look to you hanging upon that cross and we see the perfect demonstration of love for the ungrateful, for the wicked, for the undeserving. And we know that we are those people. 
And Jesus, through your lavish love, you have brought us to life and have called us now in ways that are so much smaller and yet can feel so big in our lives to love even in the midst of difficult circumstances, difficult relationships, to show your love and your generosity through tangible, sacrificial ways. Lord Jesus, we pray for those in our lives with whom we have conflict. I pray that you would empower your followers to live into your teaching in ways that bring life and freedom to others, but also life and freedom to them. May we take your clear teaching today and apply it directly into a relationship that we are in conflict with, someone that we're struggling with. We're struggling to bless. We want to curse. We're struggling to hold back. We, we need to give. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would lead us as your people, to love this way, as you taught us to love. Lord, I also want to pray today for those who may be caught in an abusive situation, who behind closed doors of even what seems like a fairly perfect family, there might be evil and darkness, hurt, shame. I just pray, Lord Jesus, for your light to come, to expose the darkness to bring safety and freedom and life, particularly for those who feel helpless. Lord Jesus, would you give them the, the strength, the courage, help them to know that there is a way forward to run toward you, to run toward help. And may we as a community here at the Erickson Covenant Church and larger community be supportive to those who are escaping abusive situations. Jesus, your desire is to bring healing and life even to the least deserving. And we look to you for that. Lead us and guide us, Lord. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening in today. We hope you feel encouraged and challenged. If you know someone who would benefit from what you have heard today, please share this podcast. For more information, or if you have questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Erickson Covenant Church.